Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. I hadn't been up here in a long time, so it's really nice to be here. And it's also nice to be here at this particular um, pulpit. Not really a pulpit, but in this particular spot. Um, because uh, I started really started preaching here. The first time ever really preached was here. And uh, also, um, the, the, the first time I became a Christian, when I was 21... Um, walking in those doors back there, that was the first time I had come to a church uh, since becoming a Christian. And uh, I remember it uh, being very difficult. So if you're someone who's here and you're not sure what you believe, and this is not really a place you've been before, trust me, I know what you're feeling. It's very difficult. So I'm proud that you're here. Uh, thank you for coming. I hope you'll come back. Um, we try to be a place that is, that is available for someone who's seeking and not exactly sure what they believe. And we're going through the Gospel of John. Uh, this winter, and uh, we're going to go all the way through Easter. And uh, the Gospel of John, uh, one of the main themes of the Gospel of John is that, uh, as we read earlier, the light comes into the world and uh, the darkness tries to overcome the light. Um, He came to his own people, his own people did not receive him. And so one of the main themes of the Gospel of John is this idea of, uh, of resistance, Resistance to the light, resistance to truth, resistance to God's grace, to the incarnation of God. And um, you see it here. It really, it kind of begins here. Um, scholars will say this is where you first begin to see the resistance building up. And you see it in verse 16 where it says that the Jews were persecuting Jesus. And then you see it again more strongly in verse 18 where it says that they were seeking all the more to kill him. So you've got to ask yourself, why would these people be doing that? And the first thing I want to say is that it is not about the fact that they are Jewish. That's very important. Because a lot of times people have used the Gospel of John to be anti-Jewish. And it's not about being anti-Jewish. In fact, John was Jewish. All the disciples were Jewish. And Jesus was Jewish. So it's clearly not a religion that is opposed to Judaism whatsoever. The point is that, the point is that even, if even they... God's beloved chosen people and the leaders of God's beloved chosen people who knew him so well, if even they are this resistant to God, then how much more are you and I likely to be resistant? So the point there is not to condemn them, but to see that if if these people resisted him, how much more likely is it that I would be resistant? There's something that I would claim that John would claim is in your heart. Uh, and is in my heart that does not want the encroachment of God, that doesn't even want his salvation or his healing, really. Doesn't even want God's healing. And that's what I want to explore this evening, um, the resistance that we all put up to God. And we see it both in the, in the Jewish leaders, we're going to look at that, but also I believe you see it in, um, in, the, in the man who is healed. And uh, my wife and I were debating just now um, whether this is a good man or not a good man. And it's not in- entirely easy to tell. That's not really the point. The point is even if he is a good man, uh, he's resistant too. We're all resistant. So that's what I want to look at. The resistance that we put up to God. And then uh, at the very end I want to talk about the way that God keeps pursuing us. Keeps coming to us. He found this man uh, in the pool of Bethsaida. And then he also found him again in the temple. And he may have found him again later on in life. But he just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. And we resist and we resist. And he keeps coming and he keeps coming. So that's the second point. God's pursuit. First is the fact that we resist God. 
And we see it most clearly in these Jewish leaders. You, you see it simply because it says that they were the ones trying to persecute him and trying to kill Jesus. And here's a man that they come upon. They may or may not have known. Um, more likely they did know that this man was hanging out by that pool all the time. It's not like Jerusalem was that big. They would have passed by that pool a lot. And they would have seen this man a lot. And so when they saw this man, they knew that he had been lame for a long time. And here they see him walking around and carrying his bed and and probably absolutely amazed, maybe even leaping or skipping or something. Certainly he must have been um, amazed and joyful that he had been healed. And their reaction when they meet him, and it's hard to even believe somebody could react this way, but they say to him, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. That, That almost sounds like a joke. That it's, that how could anybody say that? You know, you're not allowed to be healed on the Sabbath. It's a holy day. You can't go, don't go out there getting healed on the Sabbath. It's kind of like, how could they possibly come to that conclusion? It's very cruel. Uh, you could call it stupid even. Um, they're saying um, that this beautiful thing that God has made, that this thing called the Sabbath that God has given to his people, they're saying that because of that, this man should not be healed. So they're taking uh, this, this thing, and we all do this, that is good, that is uh, righteous, that is for our healing, namely the Sabbath. And they're kind of using that as a way of resisting God, uh, of beating this man. Now, just so you know, the Sabbath is a very, very good thing. Um, the Sabbath was given by God to his people to help them do things like sleep in, sleep late, take naps, eat family meals. Not uh, going out and working in any way, um, playing games, letting workers rest, having worship together, uh, lowering your blood pressure, taking care of those in need. We often think about it as these rules, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. But God gave it to help his people rest because he knows we're all kind of workaholics at heart. And here they are taking that thing and they're using it uh, to resist God. To basically try to control people, manipulate people, to gain power. And I think that probably uh, the, the most dangerous form of resistance that we all feel towards God is actually in our righteousness. So don't be thinking right now about the, the parts of your life where you're most um, concerned about your vices. Um, the parts of you that are vicious. Uh, maybe patterns in your life that you know are unhealthy, destructive. That's not really the main place the resistance usually occurs. Um, the main place is in your virtue and the parts of yourself that you feel best about, that you feel are probably um, the parts where you feel the most confident. It's likely, I don't know all of you, of course, but it's likely that the greatest resistance lies there because you think to yourself, um, you know, I'm, I'm humble or whatever, I, I, I give generously. Um, I, I don't uh, do drugs, I don't, maybe I don't overwork, or I pray, or I write good sermons, or whatever it is that you feel is a virtue of yours. And I'm not trashing that thing. What I'm, it's a great thing that there is that virtue, that, that gift. But we usually take that thing and we say, because of this, I don't really need to repent. And perhaps even thinking I'm better than you know, this person because I have this this quality about me. I'm a hard worker or whatever it is. And so therefore, I don't need to humble myself and ask for mercy and for pity from somebody else. 
One way this works out in my life a lot, and if you're married um, or dating, you, you probably know about this dynamic, is if I were to hurt, hypothetically, to hurt my wife, and um, if I were to walk out of the room while um, she was trying to talk to me, something like that, or just ignoring her when um, she needs my help and just kind of going on about my selfish ways, whether I'm doing, you know, reading something or watching a game, or if I have kind of slightly lied to avoid having an argument and kind of, you know, just shaded the truth a little bit. So if I've done one of these many things that I do to hurt her, oftentimes when I'm confronted with that thing, instead of repenting, what I'd rather do is just say to her, uh, next time I'll try harder. I'll make sure this doesn't happen again. I'm going to be really diligent about catching this thing next time. But what I don't want to do, and what you don't want to do, is to repent and say, I'm so sorry, I was actually doing that very thing. In fact, it was probably worse than you think that I was doing. And I'm so sorry, please forgive me. That's the thing we don't want to say. And it's the same way with God. Instead of uh, repenting and, and like the resistance going down, instead of that, we just kind of use our righteousness to hold him at bay. There was an article that I um, read in the Business Insider, January 17th, 2016. This is, that's two years ago, actually, now. And it was called Trump on God. Trump on God. Business Insider. The writer says uh, that Trump was asked if Donald Trump was, ever, was asked if he had ever asked God for forgiveness. And he said, this is a quote from him, I'm not sure that I have. Essentially, I'm not sure that I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I think that if I do something wrong, I think I just try to make it right. I don't want to bring God into the picture there. I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. Now, it's easy to take that, as I did when I first heard that, and say, what an idiot. You know, what a stupid president we have. That's kind of the reaction that most people want to have towards that. But what I thought later as I was talk, writing this sermon, I thought back about my original reaction. And I've mentioned this many times to many people, how I hate that, that he said that. But I was thinking, you know, he's actually being pretty honest when he said that. Pretty foolish and pretty honest at the same time. A lot of us have that same reaction. Uh, I don't like to ask, to ask for forgiveness because I'm good. He's just saying what a lot of us don't want to say, but really is deep down in there, which is that we use our goodness and our righteousness, as the Pharisees did, to actually resist God. And when I first became a Christian, about that time I was walking those doors in 1992, um, I was suddenly aware, one of the parts of becoming a Christian, um, at least for me, was you're suddenly aware of, on the one hand, you're very, very sinful, that's, that's a necessary part of what it means to be a Christian. And you're, you realize you're, um, you're a lot worse than you thought you were. That's part of it. But on the other hand, you realize that in a way that it not only matches that, but goes beyond that. You realize that, that in all that sin, you're just loved all the more. That there's just more grace for you. That grace abounds way beyond all the sin that is in us. And so I had that feeling, and so my resistance comes down. At that moment. It's kind of like in one of those Star Wars movies where they, they blow up the force field around that Death Star or whatever. And the, the shields come down. And so then they can come through. God can come through the force field around my life. And so I realized at that moment my heart was very soft. I realized I was not better than anyone. 
It helped me connect to other people like I never had. It was amazing. But then over the years, I kind of feel like always the, the force field's kind of beginning to come back up. And I feel that energy coming up, uh, the energy of resistance to God. So being a Christian doesn't end this battle. Um, it can strengthen it in other ways. Trying to power up again, and I feel resistance against that first insight. And so I imagine, I say these things because I imagine it's true of you as well. So that's the first point. Uh, the righteous resistance of these Jewish leaders. And on the other hand, you have, a, you have the powerful leaders, and then you have the powerless beggar, the lame man. Two opposite sides of the social spectrum. And yet both of them resisting God in their own way. So uh, Jesus is coming uh, down from Galilee. In other words, he's going south from Galilee. And he's going up to Jerusalem. They often say he went up to Jerusalem because that's going up the hill. You have to climb a hill to get to Jerusalem. So he's coming down south from Galilee down to Jerusalem. He goes up the hill. You enter in by the northern gate. Since you're coming from the north, you come down. The northeastern gate is called the Sheep Gate. So Jesus and his disciples come in. They're coming to a feast, maybe Passover, doesn't say. And as they're coming in, and we now know through archaeology that there's this pool there. It was a, um, it was five, there were five different little um, sets of columns. So there were two pools, one over here, one over here, and there's five columns around it. Um, so there's this beautiful, ornate pool there, and a lot of beggars would come there. And they would think, uh, a lot of lame people would come there and think that if the waters were stirred by a spring from underneath the ground, they could go down in there and be healed, which is probably superstitious. But that's, uh, I love the geographical detail. You know, reading that is part of the thing that makes me trust that, that John was not sitting in some room 50 years later just trying to think up some good stuff about Jesus that I could make up. And, you know, I'm going to create this story about a lame man being healed. No, there's too many details. Nobody writing from like Asia Minor 50 years later could even know those things existed. And yet he knows this geography intimately of, of Jerusalem. So there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, verse 3. And out of that multitude of invalids, Jesus kind of hones in on one. It says, uh, and this is not unimportant, Jesus saw him lying there in verse 6. And if you read the Gospels and you, you look for language about seeing and noticing and looking and gazing, Jesus does that a lot. It's one of the things that characterized him. He looks and notices things that we don't look at. You know, we're just always looking around for certain things that kind of please our imagination, our fancy. Uh, he looked at people and he would, just, he would just look at them and stare at them and notice them. And for some, some reason, he's looking at this guy... And then he goes up to the guy and he asks this really strange question. It almost seems like a dumb question. Do you want to be healed? That's kind of his introduction to the man. He comes up, uh, sir, would you like to be healed? Imagine that happening to you. This, this guy comes up. He doesn't know who this guy is. <clears throat> you're lame for 38 years and a guy comes up and asks you if you want to be healed. And you're like, obviously I would want to be healed. Look, look, look at me. And so he says, uh, in verse 7, he says, Sir, which is not a good translation. It's more like, dude, you know, what do you, of course. I, I have no one to put me into the pool while I, am, um, while I am sitting here. Others go in front of me, down the steps before me. That's in verse 7. And so he doesn't actually answer the question directly, does he? You would think he would just say, yes, 
Yes, please heal me right now. But he, and I'm not saying he didn't want to be healed, but he doesn't say that. Instead of saying, yes, please help me, he, um, he basically complains. He kind of grumbles. Um, again, the word sir is not a compliment. Uh, there's something in this man, and maybe this is what Jesus saw when he was looking at him, but there's something in him that is resistant to the healing. And I think Jesus knew that. Uh, he, he, in verse 6, it says he knew that he'd been there a long time. Now, how did he know that he'd been there a long time? Somehow, maybe through interviews or maybe it was just that perception. Maybe God told him that, but he knew this guy. He knew what was going on in this guy. And he knew there was some kind of, there was something resisting healing. I mean, full healing uh, in, in this man. And um, you might think that, that what I'm saying is crazy here. But what I'm saying is that a lot of people resist being healed. And I think if you're in the healing professions, you know this. That there are a lot of people that they may think they really want to be healed, but they don't necessarily. There's so much resistance in them that they actually, they're scared. They're scared of being healed. They're scared of uh, either some kind of psychological or physical healing. Um, And I think that's what's going on in this story. That's why Jesus asked the question. uh, Do you want to be healed? I was talking to someone about uh, their marriage one time. And uh, he was complaining about uh, how hard it was. And he was, he seemed like he was coming to me reaching out for healing, like he wanted healing. But then he was talking about, he was, he was frustrated with his wife and the things she did. And so um, I asked her, well, do you, do you want to love her more? Are you saying you want to love her more? Do you, do you, are you saying you want more intimacy with her? And he kind of just paused. And I could tell that he didn't have an immediate answer to that question. And he didn't, I, he didn't know exactly what to say about that. I was kind of asking him, do you want to be healed? And he didn't know exactly what he thought about that. I think he went on to maybe complain a little bit about her again. And one of the, uh, the founders of cognitive therapy that a friend of mine um, let me on to, his name's David Burns. I mentioned him before, David Burns. He has a podcast called Feeling Good. Highly encourage you to, re- to listen to that podcast. And uh, he, was a, um, he was a psychiatrist at uh, University of Pennsylvania Hospital, and he was doing this cognitive therapy, and he couldn't understand why um, his techniques were so powerful that he had learned from others before him. He couldn't understand why his techniques weren't working that much. Uh, he, he could tell that the patients were not healing as, as fast or as well as he thought, and he didn't know what was going on until he came up with this idea um, of resistance. And uh, he says that there's both a resistance to the process of being changed because of the fear. He usually was dealing with people with great anxiety and depression. Those were two things, anxiety and depression. And he realized that even the process of being healed, people really resisted that. But not only that, they resisted the outcome. So he described process resistance and outcome resistance. They They don't necessarily want to have that anxiety just taken away or that depression just taken away from them. And so he started asking them on the front end when he met with them, um, so if I could guarantee you that I could heal you right now, would you want that? And they were kind of like shocked that he would be asking that. But, but he wanted to begin by setting the agenda of, do, are, are you here to be healed right now? Do you want to be healed? Just what Jesus asked. Or maybe your anxiety is doing something for you. And I'm asking you that as well. Maybe your depression is something that you kind of hold on to a little bit. 
And you don't want some of those symptoms to be there, but you don't really want to lose the depression entirely. Jesus asked people, uh, what do you want for me to do for you? What, uh, what do you want right now? Do you want to be healed? And he asked those things because he knew about our resistance. Because a lot of times our disease is doing something for us that we like and that we don't want to give up. For instance, if you're struggling with an addiction of some kind, um, if it's pornography, drinking, eating, anger, or uh, a big one these days is video games. Sounds silly, but I heard um, a guy say recently in a lecture that, I want to get this right, I think it is that um, in men, and of course it's men, from like 15 to about 30, 40% of their waking hours are spent looking at a screen and playing a video game. So this is a problem in our culture. And if I were to offer you a pill and say, if you take this pill right now, that addiction will instantly vanish. Would you take the pill? Or is that thing doing something for you that you really like and you don't really want it to go away? Because that's the question here. I think this man, um, although he obviously didn't like being lame, I think that uh, he knew that if he was healed, he'd have to walk around, which sounds stupid, but part of him didn't want to walk around. Uh, He'd have to find work. He knew that he'd have to find work. And he'd have to take responsibility for his life. And he couldn't be a victim anymore. And he kind of was hanging on to some of those things. And so again, uh, there's this resistance. And you see... um, You see the way he's resistant in uh, in the way that he answers uh, the Jewish leaders in verse 11. They say it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he says, oh, it wasn't my fault. It was that man over there. It was his fault. And he doesn't know who he is, but some guy healed me. So he's not taking full responsibility after he's healed here. This is after he's been healed. He's still not taking total responsibility for his life. And then in verse 15, after Jesus comes again and says, stop sinning. He says, it says that he went and told the Jews that it was Jesus. So he is still trying to kind of manipulate people. He's always been used to kind of trying to use his words and whatever power he has to manipulate people to get them to do things for him. He can't really give up being uh, this beggar. That's what I'm saying. Even after he's healed of his lameness. And this is why um, Jesus comes to him and finds him a second time. And he says to him, sin no more. In other words, stop resisting all of my healing. I'm trying to heal you. Jesus comes and finds him and says, stop, stop resisting me. And that's, that's now what I want to end with. And I know it's been a while. The second part is a lot shorter. Um, the pursuit of God. We've looked at the resistance of humans. And now, what does God do about that? Well, the first thing he does that, he, he sends his son to this planet to find people to melt away their resistance. And I think the most incredible verse in the passage, and I had to read this twice, because I wasn't sure that I saw it correctly. It's verse 14, and it says that afterward, and this is after the Jews came to the man and said, uh, you're not allowed to be healed on the Sabbath. After that, the guy probably went to the temple because ritually you had to do that to be, uh, after you've been healed to be cleansed. The man goes to the temple, and it says Jesus found him in the temple. And that's what really amazes me. Um, That he went and he found him in the temple. The man was not out there looking for Jesus at all. 
Um, but Jesus came and looked for him. And he knew that, that the process had not been completed yet. And so I don't really know if he had been looking around Jerusalem for this guy or how long he had been looking. Maybe he knew he was going to the temple, so he, he was there to meet him. But it says that uh, not that the man was looking for him or found him, but that Jesus found the man. He tracked him down. And he tracked him down to heal him of a much bigger problem than not being able to walk, which is not being able to stop resisting God. And so he says in verse 14, Look, you're well, but not entirely well. Sin no more. And sin no more is literally um, stop uh, Um, this persistence of sinning. Stop persisting in your sin. And of course, in doing this, Jesus probably knew that he was putting himself in great danger. Because this allowed the man to then identify him, and then the man went and told the leaders about him. And that, from that point on, his life is in danger. Again, verse 18, the, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. But this is the good news, that uh, even if it costs God his, his life, the Son of God becoming a human, if it, even if, if he has to go to hell for us, he will keep coming to us and seeking us to find you. That's the good news here. That at the pool, he took the initiative. After the guy had complained, the guy was complaining, and no one's ever helping me and all this stuff, and then Jesus healed him anyway, after he complained. And then in the temple, after the guy had shifted all the blame on him, Jesus healed him again. Go and sin no more. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Stop resisting me and my love for you. And it's amazing the way that Jesus, and if you're a believer, you know this, just keeps coming after you. And so if you are caught in addiction... Part of me wants to say, he's going to find you. Um, In one way, I would say, don't worry about it. On the other side, I'd say it's very dangerous for you. It's having terrible worldly consequences. But on the other hand, he's going to find you. He's going to track you down. And he's going to make you give up that thing. He's going to come and kill that thing in you that resists him. There's a guy that I I heard about recently. His name is Michael Heiser. H-E-I-S-E-R. He has a, a... a great podcast. You can tell I like podcasts. It's called The Naked Bible. And it is really good. It is really, really good. He goes through, he simply goes through different chapters of the Bible every time. And he describes them. And um, he was talking about the way that a lot of Christians worry that God will stop loving them. He was preaching through Hebrews. He was talking about those warning passages where it looks like the author of Hebrews is kind of saying that uh, if you do enough bad things, God will stop loving you. And Heiser was saying, not at all, not at all. Uh, There's no way that you can get God to stop loving you. And uh, what Heiser said was that there's this passage in Paul, in Romans 5, where Paul says, if we were still sinners when Christ died for us, how much more now that we have been reconciled to him, will he continue to love us? That, that if while you were God's enemy, he would track, down, he'd track you down and find you. Now that he's found you, he's not going to give up. I mean, you're, you're not an, an enemy anymore. You're, you're, not, you're not back in that old place. If he loved you there, then he's not going to stop loving you here. Why would he stop loving you now? That's the point. The, uh, the great British poet Francis Thompson has this beautiful poem where he calls Jesus the Hound of Heaven. It's called the Hound of Heaven. And I'm going to read a little bit of it here. He says, uh, I fled him. 
Down the nights and down the days, I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. I fled those strong feet that followed after, followed after with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed and majestic instancy. I knew his love who followed and yet I was sore afraid. He's like a hound that continues to pursue whatever that thing is that hounds run after. I guess uh, it's rabbits or I don't know what deer or whatever they, they run after, but he he will wear you out, tracking you down. You know you're 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 not as uh, as full of energy and persistence as the hound is. C.S. Lewis said that um, men often talk about uh, their search for God. He said man's search for God is the mouse's search for a cat. In other words, um, that we're all kind of scurrying around, running from God into our little corners. But, but he said, the, the good news is that Jesus doesn't love us because we love him. Not at all. If that were true, we'd be, we'd be doomed. He, he loves us not because we make uh, him feel good about himself. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't love us because he gets to cuddle with us or feel, or feel our soft skin that smells so good. I mean, parents, we all love our children partly because they, we just, they do stuff for us. You know, they make us feel great in many ways. And so we love them. Well, Jesus doesn't get anything out of his love for us like that. He doesn't love us for what we give to him, but because, simply because the Father uh, loves him. That he and the Father have worked out this thing where they say, we're going to love them. We're not going to stop pursuing them. In verse 20, it says, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. In verse 17, it says, My father is working until now, and I am working. Whatever the father does, the son does. Verse 19. In other words, you can't mess up love. You can't mess up God's love because the father is going to keep telling the son, Love them. Love them. Love them. Pursue them. Pursue them. The son is not reacting to you. He's reacting to his father. who keeps telling him, Sacrifice for them. Sacrifice. Die for them. Go and die for them. Because we love them. And that was his greatest work, the most marvelous work. Verse 20, greater work than these he will show so that you may marvel. And the greater, the greater work that he showed and made us marvel, of course, is, uh, is what we're going to celebrate at this table right here. And I'm going to introduce that with another poem, a lot of, a lot of poems this week. Uh, it's, it's a poem that I read every week, actually. And um, a friend of mine, pastor in L.A., sent it to me. He knows a lot more poetry than I do. And it's called The Coming uh, by a Welsh poet named R.S. Thomas. And another friend of mine has a whole book of poems by R.S. Thomas. And he says they're all great. But this is the one called The Coming. And God held in his hand a small globe. A globe. Look, he said. The sun looked. Far off as through water, he saw a scorched land of fierce color. The light burned there. Crusted buildings cast their shadows. A bright serpent, a river uncoiled itself, radiant with slime. On a bare hill, a bare tree saddened the sky. Many people held out their arms to it as though waiting for a vanished April to return to its crossed boughs. The sun watched them. Let me go there, he said. And so, on the night that he was betrayed, 
the son who so desired to please his father uh, came to do his greatest work that would make everyone marvel. And uh, with such pride before his father and with his father's pride in him, uh, Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, to the ones betraying him, you know, on the night he was betrayed, uh, this is my body broken for you. I love you. I know what you're going to do to me.